This program was recorded on the 3rd of February, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, we look at the end of Australia Day. There's a new president in the White House. What does this mean for Australian politics? And to go early or not to go early, we'll look at whether there'll be a federal election this year. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, medical advisor to Craig Kelly. And just a bit of news about the New Policies podcast. We're now into our fourth year. We've got over 5,000 regular listeners. Last year, we got as high as number nine in the Australian podcasting charts in the news and politics category, so that's fantastic news. And it's a little bit weird, but we did get to number one in the Cayman Islands and number three in Sri Lanka. I really don't know what's going on there, but that's what those statistics are telling us. And a big thank you to all those people who donated to our podcast and also to all those people who purchased our last book, Divided Opinions, and helped it to become a number one bestseller on Amazon. And the good news is that we have another book coming out soon. We've been frantically tapping on the keyboard, proofreading, rewriting, indexing. So they will be coming out soon and we'll let you know all about that as soon as possible. David, I know that this is sounding like an annual general meeting report, but we actually did have a very good year last year. It was wonderful. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm really pleased to see those numbers. I just want to thank everyone for uh, signing in for listening, for engaging. Very appreciative of the very positive comments we've got. Also appreciative of the negative comments we've got. If you if you disagree with us, it means you've engaged with us and we've helped you to think. Probably less appreciative of the uh, personal comments, but even so, if you're annoying people, you must be doing something right. Well, it's never good to have bricks thrown at your front window, metaphorically speaking, of course. But it's good that people are engaged. We hope to do the same this year in what should be a very big political year. Can't wait. We've just had Australia Day, and as each year goes by, it becomes more and more painful. It's recognised as Invasion Day by the Indigenous community. Most people don't even know what the day is meant to commemorate. Some people think that it's about the arrival of James Cook in 1770. Some think that it's about federation. Some don't care. And most people just look forward to having a day off. It has been held on five different dates throughout Australia's history, and it only officially became a holiday in all states and territories in 1994. More recently, it's become a symbol of nationalism and jingoism, and instead of existing as a day of unity, it's become a day of division, of divided histories, and, as to be expected, it's become another day where conservative politicians map out their battleground positions in their ongoing culture wars. Australia Day Awards are now going out to undeserving candidates. Last year it was Bettina Arndt. This year it was Margaret Court for what seems to be services to bigotry and homophobia. And 67% of awards in recent years have gone out to former Liberal National Party politicians. It seems like Australia Day has been hijacked by one side of politics. It's not an inclusive day. It's becoming more and more divisive as time goes by and it's probably due for a change. It's nice to have, I think, a day where you reflect upon Australia. But while we have some very profoundly negative things to deal with, it'll never be right. 
I think it should be a day of actual unity, a day in which we genuinely celebrate Indigenous culture, where we genuinely grieve with people with with Indigenous ancestors and people who are Indigenous, and where we generally use it as a focal point to start fixing the problems. I've never, ever been a fan of unfettered jingoism. Nationalism is a very dangerous thing, particularly that American-style nationalism where it's all based around the flag and knowing the words to the national anthem. And and it's not about engaging with the legal system or the legal entity that you happen to choose to live under. There's a lot to celebrate if you have the right background Um, and have had the right opportunities. There's a lot to commiserate if you haven't. And I think finding that middle ground is important. There has been a marked shift in the perceptions of Australia Day over recent years. This year especially, the word Invasion Day has been used more prominently in the media and not as negatively as you might expect in the mainstream media. It's almost like they've come to an understanding that there are more people outside of the Indigenous communities that are starting to accept that it's a troublesome day. And it's certainly a conversation that needs to continue into the Mm. future. And as you know, you you and I are very distrusting about opinion polls, but in a recent poll, it indicated that 25% of people would like to see the date change, 23% don't actually care, and 48% want to keep Australia Day where it is. So that's not actually the majority of people. The first official Australia Day was held on July the 30th in 1915 as a fundraising event for the war effort. The next year, it was held on July the 26th. The year after that, it was on July the 27th. So historically, there has been some flexibility in when Australia Day is actually held. But today, there's a great deal of political resistance to even thinking about moving it away from January the 26th. It's the day that the first colony, which becomes New South Wales, is announced. There's a sense in which that makes sense. But that's also a very New South Wales-centric date. Victoria and Queensland are a bit later. South Australia's a bit later again. Tasmania's a little bit later. Western Australia's later again. If we weren't a federation, if we were more like the English or the Irish system where there was just one big central government, it might work. But because there are, you know, six independent states, more or less, it's very East Coast. A date change would probably be a good step in that healing we need to do, that reconciliation or really conciliation we need to do with our Indigenous history and, of course, our Indigenous population. The other factor to take into account is that even if Australia Day is moved to a different date, that's always going to be a difficult Mm. day for the Mm. Indigenous community. And if we want to avoid speculation and problems in the future about this date, whether it remains the same or it's changed to a different date, well, maybe it's best to consult with the Indigenous community and ask them what they want to see. And, you know, if you ask the right people the right questions, well, you might end up getting the right answers. (laughs) There always has been resistance to Australia Day. The first official protest was the Day of Mourning held in 1938. That was organised by the Aboriginal Progressive Association to say to the rest of the community, well... This is not a good day for us. It's not a cause for celebration. And resistance has become more prominent in recent years. There was a groundswell of support arising from the 1988 bicentenary events, and it's continued ever since that time. 
Australia Day itself, it's never really been a big deal for non-Indigenous communities anyway. The, the main issue has been, well, do we still get a public holiday? But it's taken on more meaning for conservative politicians and there's been more resistance coming from them to changing the date simply because this is what the Indigenous community has called for. And they're not prepared to cede one inch to the Indigenous people in Australia. 1938, by the way, was the 150th anniversary of the uh, landing of Philip at Port Jackson. They also had on that day a reenactment of Philip meeting the Indigenous people, which was not done in a terribly historically accurate way, nor was it done in a terribly sensitive way. But I suppose at least there was some acknowledgement that he just didn't walk onto empty land. It caused problems and it was not well done, shall we say. The other point I wanted to quickly make is that there's this idea going around that this objection to Australia Day is a brand new thing by radical Aboriginal people who have had it good and aren't speaking for blah, blah, blah. It has a very long and proud tradition of protest. And that's important to remember too, that today's activists are standing on the shoulders of the people who came before them. And we need to remember this, I think. Otherwise, the the legitimacy of the protest is undermined. Well, what did happen back in 1788 was an imperialist takeover of an entire continent. It was a flawed process legally, even according to British law that existed at that time. And that has been rectified somewhat by the Mabo case in 1992. But legally, there are still... Many issues from 1788 that do need to be resolved. There's the issue of dispossession. There's the issue of compensation for land that was literally stolen. So it's not surprising that Indigenous people are angry and upset about the events that occurred in 1788. Changing the date, that's that won't make all of these other issues go away, but at least it's a good start. One other issue about this is that Scott Morrison, he has that propensity to insert himself into the national conversation, even when he's not wanted. Here are his comments about the events of 1788. When those 12 ships turned up in Sydney all those years ago, it wasn't a particularly flash day for the people on, on, on those vessels either. And I think what that day to this demonstrates is how far we've come as a country And I think that's why it's important that we mark it in that way. It's not about that day so much. It's about how far we've come together since that day. You know, you can't just airbrush things that have happened in the past. I think one of the great things about Australia, and I think we're respected for this, is we're pretty upfront and honest about our past. But more importantly, we don't allow it to get in the way of our future. There he is trying to equate the experiences of his ancestors from the First Fleet and they would have been criminals as well. He's equating the subjugation of an entire population at the stroke of a pen, removal of land from people who had lived here for for thousands of years, attempted genocide, all of which have resulted in centuries of racism and oppression for those people. And here's Morrison saying, well, look at me. I've suffered as well. My experiences are as bad as yours. It's just... I don't know if it's calculated dog whistle or complete tin ear or a mixture of both. It may not have been a flash day for his ancestors, but if we graph it out over the 200 years, who had the better day? And it's that simple. A total lack of historical perspective, a total lack of 
sensitivity and a total lack of comprehension. And it's not really Australia Day unless there's a controversy about the Australia Day Awards. And for me, this just adds to the painful nature of Australia Day. There is a National Australia Day Council that decides who is going to receive these awards. It's a secretive process. We don't know what the criteria is. We don't know who makes nominations or who is nominated. The selection panel is made up of Liberal Party operatives. And the head of the panel is Shane Stone. He was the former country Liberal Party Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. So it does seem like it's a very partisan body. And because of the political nature of this panel, the good work of the real community workers is overshadowed by someone controversial. And this year it was Margaret Court who was given the companion of the Order of Australia. Well, you know, she's no friend of mine, but... What is going on here? Was she actually meritorious of the award? Was it a diversion from the news of the government botching the vaccine program or or is something else going on here? As I understand it, she got it for services to tennis. Now, she'd already received one of these. She'd received the OAM 20 or 30 years ago for services to tennis. She hasn't done anything in tennis since, as far as I know. It would seem an odd thing to give that type of award to. They could have given it to 100,000 other people who were as deserving. She is now a Pentecostal minister with very socially conservative views, and I think that was a huge part of it. They didn't give it, say, to Yvonne Goulagon-Cawley or Joanna Griggs, who you know is now a TV announcer but did very well in athletics, I believe, at the Olympics a few years back. Or Kathy Freeman. The fact that they gave it to, of, of all the people, Margaret Court says a lot about the type of people they, they value. I have been involved in helping nominations for these things uh, when I was working in local history. Most of them were for the types of people who should get these awards, to be fair, and that is local volunteers who do far more for the community than others who do it not because they want awards, not because they want to be acknowledged, but because they think it's the right thing to do. And they're not doing it for money. Quite happy to see these types of people acknowledged. And most of them were quite surprised that you'd be considered for an award because you'd run the local historical society for 15 years and had, you know, been an integral part of that community. People who'd, you know, served Meals on Wheels, SES volunteers who'd gone above and beyond your standard, people like that. So it seems like there are many worthy people that do receive an Australia Day award. People that do good community work do need to get recognised. People that are already in the public spotlight, maybe not. People that have been former prime ministers or former ministers of the government. But it does seem like there needs to be reform of the Australia Day Awards Committee, the way these processes are adjudicated. It also seems to be a case where the conversation about changing the date of Australia Day or changing what it's actually called or what it is or what it's meant to signify, that also needs to change as well. That's not going to happen in the short term. It's obvious that it won't change under Scott Morrison. And it seems like anything to do with Indigenous affairs or Indigenous politics, he's just not interested. Like his greatest support and endorsement of the Indigenous community was to change one word of the national anthem. One word was changed, big deal. Probably a case where nothing at all is going to happen under Scott Morrison or under a Liberal government. A change of date might need to wait for a change of government. 
I think it will. You know, one of the few things I will give to Tony Abbott is that he did pay lip service to Indigenous affairs. He was he did not do a very good job, but he did pay lip service to it. Malcolm Turnbull probably even less lip service than Tony Abbott, but again there was that acknowledgement that there was this thing that perhaps needed to be dealt with one day, maybe by one of his governments, maybe by someone else. Scott Morrison has ignored the problem. My theory is that Scott Morrison's whole thing is based on how many votes will I get. Now, all politicians have this, of course, but most politicians up to now have had a one eye on what is the public good, what is the right thing to do and how can I translate this, or even what is my policy and how can I translate this into votes. Morrison seems to be, I need the votes. And he's calculated, I think, that there are no votes in Indigenous affairs. His natural inclination is to not worry about it anyway, being a man of privilege living in a bubble. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, will the winds of change in America flow over to Australia? Delight Joe Biden is officially the new president of the United States. And while Donald Trump kept on claiming that the election last November was rigged and he would continue to be the president, there was never any doubt at all that Joe Biden was going to become the next president on Inauguration Day. And it's good riddance to bad rubbish. Trump was one of the worst presidents to ever sit in the Oval Office. And it's the end of a chaotic four years where the US became a diminished player on the world stage. It ceded political power to China and developed a very unstable political culture domestically. When politics changes in the United States, politics all around the world also changes. But we also have to remember that a win to the Democrats doesn't mean that the United States won't be involved in dirty wars all around the world or stop selling arms to unsavory dictators or stop acting in a way that is totally in the interests of the United States. But there's a wide range of changes to be coming soon, a fresh look at climate change issues, restructuring economies, and government having a greater role in the provision of health and social services, and a greater government intervention into the economy. Scott Morrison became too close to Donald Trump, appearing on stage during one of Trump's election rallies in Ohio in 2019, refusing to call out Donald Trump during the insurrection event on Capitol Hill, even though most other world leaders strongly condemned Trump, he was a lame duck leader in the last week of his presidency and he was on the way out. Morrison seems to have lost a personal friend in the White House. So what will a Biden presidency mean for Australia? One of the things we have to be careful of is overestimating the power of personal friendship between world leaders. Countries will always act in their self-interest first. Paul Hasluck warned Harold Holt of this, that just because Harold and Lyndon Johnson got on very well, it didn't mean that the United States was going to not act in its own interests when Australian interests were affected. 
uh, American government start to flex its muscle again just by the installation of Biden. And the fact that some Republicans have stated their willingness to work with the Biden administration, I think bodes badly for Australia. There's still the right-wing nut job Republicans, uh, Laura Boebert, for example, who can't see why she's not allowed to carry a gun into Congress, who will create problems for, for Biden. And while they might look at Scott Morrison and think he's a good man, these are now marginal figures again. Morrison overplayed his hand in supporting Trump in the unqualified way that he did. The whole QAnon thing plays into it. We have George Christensen, Craig Kelly, who have basically come out as supporters of the QAnon cult. We know that Scott Morrison associates uh, with members of or with people who identify with the QAnon cult. Biden hasn't called Australia yet. He's called 12 or 13 other countries. He hasn't called Australia yet. I think Trump called Australia fairly quickly. Obama called Australia fairly quickly. Bush called Australia within the first week or so. And I guess these are all issues that play out to the respective domestic sure. audiences. But we have to remember that Australia is not really a big player in the world stage. It's got 0.3% of the world's population. It's in the top 15 world economies, according to GDP. Australia does have some influence in world politics, but it's not that great. Having a good relationship with the President of the United States, well, it might get you a state dinner or a wholesome meal with the President, a handshake with the President, which of course means a great photo opportunity. It might involve inviting the US President to Australia, and if, if they take up that invitation, well, that of course means another photo opportunity for the Prime Minister. But Generally, it's not such a great idea to get involved in the politics of another country. And Morrison was quite foolish to campaign with Trump in Ohio in 2019. That would have been noted by the Biden team. But these personal relationships, they don't really have such a big difference. It might be a marginal difference. For example, if there's two similar trade deals on the table with the with the United States, one's with Australia and the other one is with Kazakhstan. If the US president has a close relationship with the Australian prime minister and they don't know the Kazakhstan president at all, that might help swing the deal towards Australia. But even then, that would probably be more because of the defence ties the United States has with Australia rather than any personal relationship. It still takes about 20 years to hammer out a trade deal. In that time, in Australia, you could potentially have five changes of government. Now, that's unlikely historically. We know this. But certainly, you know, with an election every three years, it's more likely that, you know, you have two or three changes of government in that time. And that makes a difference, too. That's why it takes so long. There also have been discussions about the types of climate change policies the United States government will implement. One suggestion is that they will implement a trade tariff with those countries that are not fulfilling their climate change obligations or without adequate targets to reduce carbon emissions by the year 2050. And guess which country that would affect the most? Australia, of course. So there is potential for any climate change tariff imposed by the United States to affect Australia far more than the tariffs that were recently imposed by the Chinese government and do far more damage to the Australian economy. Morrison was very happy to join Trump's trade war with China and 
I know this is unlikely, but if Morrison was a consistent politician, and he's not, he'd be starting off a trade war with America too. There's a very strong support of the United States within federal parliament for all kinds of reasons. If we ignore the possible money that comes through from donors, the United States has been somewhat of a model for Australia. Culturally, of course, the United States is dominant. Our movies, our music, our literature is dominated by United States product. There's a theory that says that Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United States, Britain and Ireland are all 90% the same. The, the difference is in the 10% left over. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Some of the interest towards the United States, I think, is not good. Some of it is perfectly fine. And that's on both sides of politics too. The word insurrection is not a word that you hear very often in politics, but that's exactly what happened at Capitol Hill on January the 6th. And it was almost like the storming of the Bastille. But as big as it was, it seemed to be underreported in the Australian media. And of course, it happened in a foreign country. So perhaps that's one of the reasons. But this was a really massive event. And as bad as it was, it could have been far, far worse. Unlike most of the world media, the ABC didn't actually use the word insurrection until late in the piece. There was an internal editorial ban on the word and then it was lifted. And then the ABC started to describe the events at Capitol Hill as an insurrection. But then the Minister for Communications, Paul Fletcher, he intervened even though he's not meant to. The word was banned again at the ABC, so... That's what was happening at the ABC. But generally, within the media, it seemed to be an underreported event. It seemed the reporting did seem to be perfunctory. It was something along the lines of, oh, well, this is what's happened. We've reported it. And that was the end of it. It, it was odd because it was almost as if it was reported as, oh, those crazy Americans, look at this. Typical. And yet, you know, the Confederate flag in the halls of the Capitol building. And the Capitol building is a magnificent building. It would be like running the the Nazi flag through Westminster in England or the, the Japanese war flag through Parliament House here. They were going to find uh, members of Congress and members of the House of Representatives and try them and possibly murder them on the spot possibly by lynching or possibly by firing squad. They were carrying zip ties clearly to bind people and to restrain people. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made some disturbing suggestions about what happened to her. It seemed that she narrowly escaped severe injury. A policeman was beaten to death. This is the same people who were championing the Blue Lives Matter course, and Blue Lives, it seems, only mattered when it suited them. Another woman was shot. It was a massive, massive thing. The fact that it was incompetently run was perhaps the only positive thing to come out of it, in that, like all extremist groups, they're not actually terribly competent. So we mentioned before that when politics in the United States changes, the politics of the world changes as well. Now, I don't think people should get too excited over here. That doesn't mean that the Labor Party is necessarily going to win the next election just because there's been a, a sweeping change that occurred in the United States. The way that 
the US will affect world politics is in climate change issues, there's economic factors that come into, into play. And just looking at governments historically, when the Labor Party was in government during 1983 and 96 in Australia, that coincided with the Republican period of 1981 to 1993. Liberal Party in Australia between 96 and 2007, that coincided with the time that the Democrats were in office between 1993 and 2001. So there's no direct correlation that just because you get a change of government in the United States, you'll get a change of government in Australia. But there are issues that will change over over time. Those economic factors in the United States will affect economic thinking in Australia. If government intervention becomes more fashionable in the economy in the United States, as is likely, it's already happening now, and it's happening in Australia right now with JobKeeper and $303 billion worth of government intervention within the economy. So there are ways that politics in Australia will change, but it's unlikely to result in a change of government at this stage. I should point out that the Hawke-Keating government, particularly economically, was a bit closer to the Reagan-Thatcher governments than, say, the Whitlam government would have been. And the Howard government, again, economically, was a bit closer to the Clinton administration than perhaps, say, the Fraser government would have been. So there is those types of things that the change may not come through in party terms, but in ideological terms, parties adjust to meet the ideology of the prevailing zeitgeist, if you like. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, it's not due until 2022, but there's a strong possibility of a spring election in 2021. Scott Morrison has consistently said that his government will run for the full term of office, which is due to expire in July 2022. But keeping up with this form over the recent years, we can't believe a word Morrison says, and Prime Ministers call the date of an election when they think they are most likely to win. And it's always been the case in federal politics. The earliest date available for a normal half-Senate election is August the 7th this year. There's an expectation that Morrison will call an early election as soon as possible after this date and seek a rare fourth consecutive term in government. The coalition is widely expected to win the next election, and that's what the media keeps telling us. And if the election was actually held today, they probably would. But the good news for the Labor Party is that the election is not being held today, and there are so many factors that will need to be considered. What will be the state of the economy in six months' time? Will the electorate be satisfied with the economic management provided by the coalition, as well as their management of the coronavirus pandemic? Will the vaccine program be effective or not? Who will Morrison face at the next election? It's likely to be Anthony Albanese, but could it be Jim Chalmers or Tanya Plibersek or even someone else? Scott Morrison is not known for his political courage. That's why I'm doubting an early election. I think he can talk a big game, but it's like his announcements. He will say a lot, but not actually do a lot. 
there's been a member of the Liberal Party, David Coleman's been sick for two years. Now, I hope, I wish him, I genuinely wish him all the best. I hope that he gets better. But you can't have two years of sick leave on full pay. And the reason that they haven't got him to step down and run a by-election is because they're scared that they'll lose the by-election. Gladys Liu, who's a security risk, should have been kicked out of the party on a point of principle. The evidence is clear that she is a massive security risk. But again, they'll lose that by-election. We can go on and on and on with people who should have resigned, who should have been kicked out through ill health. And again, ill health is nobody's fault and I don't want anyone sick. He's not a terribly courageous leader. Somebody like Keating or Howard, of course, would strategically wait, but they still had the courage to hold by-elections when they needed to, and on occasion, let go of people who needed to be let go. Since 2013, really, we've had this change. I doubt we'll have an early election. Well, circumstances can change dramatically, and they can change very quickly as well, as we saw with the pandemic in 2020 that came out of virtually nowhere. What will happen to the economy over the next few months? JobKeeper is due to end at the end of March, and that's less than two months away. Many economists are suggesting that if JobKeeper is fully removed, well, that's going to cause so many problems related to demand within the economy. And they've suggested that it will be like ripping off a tight Band-Aid from a gaping wound. That's going to cause a lot of social pain. And there's going to be a great deal of damage to the economy as well. The Liberal Party keeps pushing out that message that they're the superior economic managers And there's a great deal of evidence out there to suggest that that's not actually the case. But removing JobKeeper is one of, it's more of an ideological decision rather than an economic one. And that's going to cause a lot of political pain for the Liberal Party as well as damaging their economic credibility. So there's at least those economic considerations that Morrison does have to take into account. And If the conditions are not favourable, well, he's not going to hold an early election. He'll hold off for as long as possible. Yeah, and I mean, that's true of all. Even the brave leaders aren't going to go in when they know they're going to lose, unless they absolutely have to, because the date has determined so. Some of them will push, thinking we'll likely lose, and the Keating in uh, 93 springs to mind. He shouldn't have won. And in fact, to be fair, uh, Morrison... In 2019, nearly everybody thought that he was not going to win, and he only scraped back in by one seat. I'm retiring, or at least stepping back from predicting election results, because at the moment, they're unpredictable. One factor the Labor Party has identified is that they believe that the electoral support for Morrison is actually quite soft at the moment. If there is an August or September election, that will be eight years of the Liberal National Government. Morrison will have been the leader for almost three years. Is that long enough for the electorate to get sick of hearing his voice or seeing him on the national stage all the time, quite often talking about himself, of course? He currently does have an approval rating of 66%. That is incredibly high, but the two-party preferred vote for the Liberal Party is actually sitting on 50%, which is a decrease from their vote of 51.5% at the 2019 federal election. So they've actually gone backwards on, on that measure. If you compare that statistic of 66% with Kevin Rudd, who 
had an approval rating of 71% in 2008. The two-party preferred vote for the Labor Party at that time was consistently in the high 50s, and it got up to as high as 61%. And as we know, it's the two-party preferred vote that is more relevant than the preferred rating for the Prime Minister. So Morrison's approval rating is high, but this isn't translating to votes on the ground. So it's suggesting that the electorate is giving support to an incumbent Prime Minister because of the pandemic. There's a little bit of the rally around the flag feeling as well, but they think that the Liberal National Coalition is actually quite a terrible government. I think that's what these figures are saying. Travelling around Australia, as I do, mostly New South Wales, and I speak to people of all political persuasions and mostly have good and constructive conversations with them. And whereas there were people who loved Tony Abbott, uh, people who loved John Howard, friends of mine on the left don't believe this, but it's true. People who loved Malcolm Turnbull. Now, how many of those, how many people that was is another debate we could have. I, I can only talk from my relatively small sample. I don't get that level of love about Scott Morrison. Now, John Howard's popularity, I don't think, ever went over 55% after the initial honeymoon. I remember him saying when they dumped Kevin Rudd, who was still polling at 63% or something, or 65%, he said, the numbers I had as Prime Minister, they'd have dumped me years and years before. And he said, you know, we knew that Labor would, would fold. And it's partly because I think Labor... And I've said this before, Labor needs an inspiring, charismatic figure to lead them out of the wilderness. I'm not saying whether, you know, I'm not going to say oh, it should be or it shouldn't be. I'm just stating the, the situation as I see it. Scott Morrison gets a little bit of, oh, he's pretty funny sometimes. Oh, he's got a hard job. I'm sure that there are people who that are devoted to Scott Morrison, but I think it's a very small amount of people. I suspect the closer you move to Pentecostal circles, the more the love would be. Again, I can't predict the next election. Given traditional metrics and rubrics and data, he, he would lose. But those things don't work anymore. Whatever metrics we use right now, or whatever the media is telling us right now, every election has to be seen as a winnable mm. election, otherwise there's no point in turning mm. up. And just on that issue, the Labor Party has identified that Morrison's high approval rating is quite soft. We also have to consider, well, what will happen if Albanese starts putting a lot more pressure on Morrison and Morrison's ratings start to fall? And we have been critical of Albanese in the past, and we have copped a lot of abuse about that, but that's okay. If we see a leader who's not performing, we have to call that out. But I guess we all have to take into account that whatever has happened or what hasn't happened in the past during 2019 or 2020, that doesn't really matter if there is an election in 2021. This year is absolutely critical in developing those election themes and ideas. The electorate won't remember the peripheral events from the past, but they will remember all of, all of those salient events, such as Morrison going off to Hawaii during the bushfire crisis. That's something that really will resonate in the public's mind. Whether there is an election this year or not, this is still going to be a very important year in politics. What the Labor has to do from this point onwards, it's, it really needs to start aggressively targeting Morrison 
and Albanese hasn't really done that since he became the leader. They have to aggressively target the multi-levels of corruption, the denigration of the democratic processes of, of parliament. The other issue is that Queensland is actually quite a dead zone for the Labor Party. They only hold six of the 30 seats in that state and only 41% of the two-party preferred vote. There was a 5% swing to the Labor Party in the October state election last year. Will there be a leakage from state politics into federal politics and what will that effect be? But you'd have to think that surely the Labor Party can't go any lower in Queensland. And in the media, there was that recent leadership speculation about Albanese's position. And for what it's worth, I feel that if Labor can quickly resolve these this leadership speculation, whether it's a case of Albanese becoming a more aggressive and a more substantial leader during this year or whether they do indeed make a switch to to a different leader, if this part of the equation can be stabilised, then the Liberal National Party will be history at the next election. One of the things that I have been contemplating is something you said, I think it was in our last podcast, about how Labor is very successful at a state level, but not at a federal level. And when you bring this type of thing into it, a lot of the usual assumptions start to fall apart. The power of the Murdoch press. I don't think there's been a more vilified state premier than Anna Palaszczuk, with the exception of Daniel Andrews and Mark McGowan. Queensland is full Murdoch state. Victoria is Murdoch and Fairfax. And Fairfax is, of course, owned essentially by very powerful members of the Liberal Party. So the media bias thing starts to play a lot less. Labor is trying, I don't think they're trying the small target tactic of Kim Beasley, which which didn't work. But I think Anthony is trying to fix the level of debate. And so he doesn't want to do the personal attacks and the, the sleaze attacks, etc. There's an argument that says all's fair in this stuff. You may as well fight back with what you can. And there's plenty to fight back with. But also the level of corruption, the level of incompetence, the level of mismanagement should be enough to go on. You don't need to have a personal attacks to look at Angus Taylor's water ownership. Ronnie Salt's excellent work on unfolding that as best as anyone could really opened up a can of worms that Angus Taylor should have resigned over. George Christensen's problematic trips to the Philippines... The Labor Party can and should go after these. Now, Christina Keneally has done a very good job. Penny Wong has done a very good job. And Jim Chalmers has done a very good job. And one of Anthony's strategies might be to let the party speak to show that you're electing a team that is completely capable, whereas Scott Morrison really tries to hide his team for good reason. And speaking of which, there is one person that Scott Morrison should be hiding and hiding well up, up until the next election. Parliament has returned for 2021 and the Liberal Party's chief conspiracy theorist, Craig Kelly, here he is being taken to task by Tanya Plibersek over his bizarre claims about coronavirus vaccines. Are you making any big announcements? Yes, I'm actually... I'm actually telling them that the PM yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. stop you spreading yeah, yeah, yeah. these crazy yeah, yeah. Did you hear, Did you hear about Professor Clancy? You've got to listen to our, oh, oh, our, oh, oh, our most oh, senior, oh, oh. senior immunologist, Tanya. It's Professor Robert Clancy. Listen to him. Go and get his stuff. 
read what he's saying, and you'll find my, out, and then you can come and apologise to us. Uh, okay? my, my, my mum lives in your electorate, and I don't okay. want her exposed to people well, that I'm not well, going well, to be vaccinated because of these crazy conspiracy well, theories yeah. that you're spreading. Well, you're the one doing that because you are the one spreading misinformation. Right? You've oh. got to listen to listen to the professors, listen to our most senior immunologists. So, so says, your prime minister is wrong, says, is he? Our prime minister is one hundred percent right. He agrees with I'm you. I'm saying you Scott are Morrison, wrong. Listen, 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 listen to I'm not going to. My prime minister will speak for himself. Listen to the words of our most senior immunologist today yeah. in the Sydney Morning Herald. I'll, I'll listen to he the has said. So he has Craig said. Kelly is definitely one member of Parliament. He needs to be kept away from the public. Hopefully after the next election it will be permanent. But these are the types of people that exist in the Liberal Party. Quite a few of them are extremists. And these are the types of people the Labor Party should be targeting during this year. There's the corruption, the mismanagement, the conspiracy theories, the members of Parliament that work against the public interest. There is so much material to work with. Effective oppositions can use this. And they're being handed this stuff on a platter too. And again, it's easy to say, well, the Labor Party doesn't get the traction in, in the papers. I think the most popular Premier in Australia at the moment might be Mark McGowan. I thought it was Daniel Andrews, and we can add in Anna Palaszczuk in Queensland, all of whom just have relentless attacks on them every single day. This hasn't taken traction. Now, of course, they're in government, so it's easy to get your views aired. Ultimately, the good journalists of Australia, and they do exist, as critical as I am of the media, there are very good journalists, will like a good narrative, will like a powerful media presence, and will respond to good opposition work. And that will start to come through. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.